Lovers, this episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. We all know that there is more to confidence in the bedroom or the kitchen or the sex club or a stairwell or the woods or wherever you are. There's so much more to sex wherever you do it than just jackhammering away. But if all you're missing in your relationship is some mutually beneficial stiffness, check out BlueChew.com. BlueChew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you are approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online, so no visits to the doctor's office with the doctors that never got trained in sex ed and how to talk to people about it, plus no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet pack. They say that there is nothing sexier than confidence, and Blue Chew can help give you confidence where it counts. Of course, I know you sweet listeners know that using confidence to connect, if you can be confident enough to be really vulnerable with someone, to communicate, to create a safe space that you occupy together, that is super hot. That's the foundation of a connection. And if you have a boner, that can definitely help you do certain things that you know that I love, just as long as you don't skip all the other stuff too. Blue Chew and I want you to have better sex. Discover your options at bluechew.com. And as they say, chew it and do it. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code LOVER. At checkout, you just pay $5 shipping. That is bluechew.com promo code LOVER to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And thank you to Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Hello, lovely humans. I'm Wyo and you are listening to Sex Stories, a podcast where we gain knowledge and inspiration from each other's expertise so we can all live lives that turn us on. Our guests today are a partnered poly couple who have been together for five years. She is a 59-year-old educator, creator of events, and minister in training with over 20 years of counseling experience who facilitates self-acceptance, problem-solving, and healing. He is a counselor, consultant, and end-of-life doula who has over a decade of experience as a professional dominant and who has developed non-traditional sexual behavior counseling geared towards self-actualization and dismantling shame. From the Kink Collective in NYC, welcome Kat and Joshua. Ooh, thank you so thank much you. for having us on. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you. Can you each start off by telling us, Today, if you had to rate yourself on a sexual shameometer, with 10 being so full of sexual shame and one being like, nah, I'm good, where do you fall right now and has it ever fluctuated? I would say about a two or a three, because I'm sure there's things that my body hasn't given myself permission for yet that I'm still trying to dig out. And 
the person or people I'm with absolutely matters too. Not more so being shameful of who I am, but them being able to receive what I am. At the risk of sounding flip, I just want to say one. Great. It hasn't always been that way, but I don't have shame around myself, my sexuality, the people I play. Like, I just don't. I, it wasn't always that way, but it has been that way for a while. Do you feel comfy taking us through the, like, what, like, leveled it out for you? Because I really, I meet a lot of one on the shame meters and sometimes I think I'm that, and then I get into these situations, and I'm like, ah, I can't even talk about it. So, like, what have you <laughs> noticed in your shame journey? <laughs> well, I mean, I can't tell you where I was before, about 12 or 13 years ago, but I've been a club owner and a party promoter for sex parties for all that amount of time. And the exposure and involvement of myself and all of the people that I've come to know, it was a large influx of information and experience that just made everything okay. Like there isn't anything that isn't okay so long as people are consenting and, you know, and able like, so there is no need for shame around mm -hmm. any of it. And so I embrace that for myself as well. Yeah. Do either of you notice a difference in your like shame meters between your personal life and your professional life? Because I have lately started to notice like I still struggle to speak with partners sometimes on these things that like I'm literally just like blabbering about my fantasies half the time in my regular life. <laughs> <laughs> Not particularly on my end. My profession and my personal life parallel each other in regards to the sexual energy and the spaces that I try to create for myself and my partners and the people I work with. I especially try to lower that 201 for the folks that I am working with because I want to make sure that they have a space that they can speak without even the slightest idea of feeling shamed into who they are. That's my position. Yeah. Yeah. What he said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. And now could you just give a little snippet? Did either of you get a helpful like sex talk, sex ed lesson, or lesson in consent when you were growing up? Oh, absolutely not. No. Okay, great. I learned I learned about the birds and the bees at Girl Scouts. It was horrific. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for myself, I learned it on, for anyone from the Northeast who remembers Robin Bird on public access and cable and friends and what other people were talking about. But that's actually something I speak about quite often is how are we teaching the kids about intimacy and connection because the emphasis is on the physicality of sex when, while it is important to understand the anatomy and the process and the safety and everything on the technical side, I think the big hiccup is, and that we're not doing, is talking about the importance of connection yes. and trust building, especially for children, right? Because sex isn't about sex. Sex is about investment, about vulnerability, about sharing, about space. And the language is all wrong. I was actually talking to my nephew last week, who's 11. I started having sex at 12 and he's 11. And it's like, my brother's afraid to talk to him about sex, yep. right? Because it's like such a shameful conversation. And it's like, it shouldn't be because most people have it to some degree or another, it's desired. And if we're not teaching them how to approach it responsibly and safely, what are they going to do? They're going to say, make the same choices that we've made. Yes. We just continue the cycles that are in place. Yeah. I also think an important part of the conversation is intimacy and sex, right? Like I came up believing that the word intimacy meant sex. And it wasn't until very late that I began to understand that intimacy and sex don't even necessarily have to be related. And I think that's an important part of the conversation that was never had with me. Well, that is what we are doing here today to try to fill in some of those uh, context gaps that I think so many of us have. So could you tell us 
Before we get to details, what is sexy to you? What are your personal definitions or experiences of the idea of sexy? For me, sexy is confidence. It's uh, seduction. It's sultry. It's being able to seduce with body movement and language. It's being able to articulate with confidence what it is that you want. Having the physical freedom while engaging in sex and play to be vocal, to give signs of joy and pleasure or not comfortably. I think communication, nonverbal and verbal, is probably the sexiest thing for me. It leads me down the road, right? If I don't have that, it's like I'm just in a dark room looking for a button. For me, sexy is a little more subtle, right? Sexy is like a look across a room. Sexy is just the way someone stands. It's very subtle, easy, light stuff. I mean, sexy in all the traditional ways, but for me, I think what makes it maybe different for me is that it's very subtle. Like I can look across the room and see someone that I like or I'm attracted to and just the look in their face or the way they're speaking to someone or the way they're standing or their clothes, like is sexy to me. Yeah. And I love both of those answers. And I think they're both, you know, it's we're creating fullness here. Okay. So now what counts as sex? That question. <laughs> we, know, we throw that, uh, that we question talk about this during negotiations. We'll define right. sex because everyone defines sex differently. Yeah, yes, oh, yeah. they do. For me, sex is penetration and the intention of penetration, right? Because like, let's say if there's two female-bodied folks who are engaging in sex, there's no penis to penetrate. However, we have other things we can use to penetrate or any type of connecting to the body parts. Kissing isn't sex to me. However, kissing is more intimate than sex to me too. Same, 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 same. I don't think masturbation, mutual masturbation is sex. I think that's two people masturbating together. But what if the other person's masturbating the other person is that sex it's like a handshake <laughs> well <laughs> one might argue in some ways that sex is it can be recreational to that end right totally so, well, yes totally i've come up around a lot of ways of using this question as a way of dodging responsibility right like well you know i didn't do this therefore it wasn't sex and someone else is hurt like there's a whole nuanced way of using it's the bill clinton thing right like you know it (laughs) wasn't sex what you're saying yeah yeah it comes up a lot in the i wasn't cheating babe (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like that so for me anything that has to do anything that has to do with orgasm unless you're alone in a room by yourself probably is the easiest way to cleave the question right so mutual masturbation so oral sex so any of those things where climax is or can be involved counts as sex to me I love that. Okay, can you guys give us a little overview of what your sex-related work life is like right now? Like, do you identify as sex workers? What is it that you do? What do you think about sexy on a day-to-day basis? Like, just give us your sex work overview, sex at work overview. (laughs) (laughs) So technically, I do have sex at work. (laughs) <laughs> sometimes just because it's the space I'm, I'm kidding. because we work where we live <laughs> yeah no yeah. Oh, good um, point. <laughs> in order to get time with me a person has to have an investment into themselves introspectively because if we're going to negotiate any sort of vulnerability or intimacy i need you to have the language to have a conversation with me on the professional side of things do i consider myself a sex worker at the end of the day yes because that's what I'm helping people work through is their relationship with intimacy, sex, shame, and a whole other gamut of things. But it all boils down to the investment and energy they're looking to share with someone else. So in order to gain that access to me as a sex worker, there's a large investment of time from the other person because I want to make sure that 
my energy isn't being drained for fetish dispensing. Mm. Yeah. Right. For someone coming to me to say, this is what I need. And I would like you to give it to me. My side of that is, well, what are you doing for yourself in order to deserve it? Right. Where is it coming from and why do you need it? Because as a sex worker, <laughs> and I talk about this a lot, especially with the implements of BDSM, it's a drain and it's a toll on our body. Risk, injury, harm. You know, there's a lot of things that can come into this. And while I've been having sex for the better part of 32 years, I've learned the price that is invested or paid for it. I agree. I do some professional domination work as well. And for me, what's really important is that I'm on a journey with a client, right? It's not just, like you said, it's not just transactional. It's not just, I want you to do this to me. It's where are you on your journey? And how is it that I may assist you in that journey, right? And so that's a really important part for me. Other than that, my sexy work was when I had a sex club, which I haven't had in a few years. And that was the whole of my life at the time. And that was you know, everything that I did in terms of creating safe space for people. I used to participate in the parties because I could and I wanted to. It was all about that at that point. But I don't do that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell us what each of you respectively loves the most about your work right now? The work that we do is about helping people become their best selves, become who they want to be. There's a whole host of things that go on with the work that we do. And I just love I feel blessed. I feel blessed and humbled and amazed that I get to participate in helping people learn how to communicate, helping people learn how to connect with themselves and other people in this realm, in the sexy realm, but also in the realm of spirit and in the realm of just humanness. Like you, I love that you introduced this thing as hello humans. Like there's a whole human aspect of it. Yeah. And the fact that we've devised a whole system, which is another whole story, but to really effectively help people, to walk them through in a very brief amount of time, skills and understanding that allow them to step into who they really want to be. The work that we do is life-changing, and I know that sounds like a lot, but it really is. Yeah. And I'm just floored like that the universe made it see fit that I could be at this stage in my life and my career. I feel exceedingly fortunate. Amazing. Yeah, if I can connect the two questions, one previous and, and this one here. I think sex work is work for God, work for the universe. I think the work that we do in the space that we hold allows people to find authenticity and self-acceptance and acceptance from another human being on a way that was intended, right? To sit in front of someone who is without judgment. It's changed my life, this whole journey of sex work, and has helped me find my relationship to God or the universe, however a person would describe their belief system. And I think part of the work that I try to do in the teaching that we have and the network of sex workers that we know and others that we haven't met yet is that that is the significance of the work that we're doing. We're holding space for folks as sex workers to be themselves accepted without shame. And there's no other feeling like that. Like it's really hard for us to find spaces to get that feeling. That's where I'm at with my sex work. The sex is the byproduct of the investment. Right, The play is the byproduct of the investment into vulnerability and understanding self. And it transcends the intimacy and the play that we have to everyday life. Imagine meeting someone who allows you to be the most authentic self possible. And then after we leave, after you leave our connection, you go into a world where you feel like you have to put masks on, but why settle for that? And that's part of the work that we do. It's not just about what are you into and how do we do it, yeah. but 
tell me about yourself. Tell me your fears. Tell me about your relationship with touch and intimacy. And we really get to help people process their past because no one survives childhood. Everyone has some sort of influence or I'll, I'll use the word influence because trauma falls into that, that yes. umbrella. People have different influences in their lives that mold them. And we have our wings clipped when we're young, right? We're shamed into not being ourselves with uh-oh moments like the time you got busted masturbating, right? right. And imagine how could we flip those uh-oh moments to aha moments, right? When a parent finds their child masturbating and the child feels uh-oh, right? That's an opportunity for the parent to go, aha, well, let me talk to you about it. Let me talk to you about your relationship with your body and what may feel shameful. And we try to not put band-aids over a person's life experiences, but really focusing on how do we mend it? Yeah. How do we support ourselves in the actual shape that we came out? And what about for yourself? Do you feel like you have to put a mask back on after the work you do? Because I've been dabbling in various depths of offering myself to people and it's wonderful and it's my favorite. And then I go back into the regular world and I'm like, oh wait, time and place. Okay. So how do you handle that for yourselves? I lost the separation between the different parts of my life. I don't have it anymore. I mean, and I have family members that don't really stay in touch with me because of it, but I got to a point where I don't really mind is an easier way of saying that I don't really care. I'm who I am, right? One of the things that would happen in the club is people would come in and they would be like, well, this is the name I want to use. This is my same name again. And like, this is my name, Chad. And this is who I am, right? And it's freeing to not have to put on masks. And so much so that I haven't thought about it in a while. Like, yes, I think it would be exceedingly uncomfortable to have to put on a mask. I think, like you said, there's a time and place for everything, right? I'm not the type to shove things down people's faces. However, I won't allow someone's discomfort to force me to dial down my authenticity. With that being said, there's a leather brother of ours by the name of Bob. Bob, if you're watching this, I love you who we were talking about, how do you maintain authenticity in public in your day-to-day -day life? And the takeaway from it was understanding that we're at wherever we're at. We're not too late. We're not too soon. We're not too big. We're not too small. We're just at where we're at in life and that's okay. When a person finds comfort in edging out a little more into that authenticity, like myself, I'll go into leather. I'll wear a dress to a wedding. Like I've pushed my envelope, but my bar is unrealistic for people to set to aim for right off the bat. What I say to folks and how I did it was without the words, and Bob finally gave me the word for it, is do it piece by piece, whatever feels comfortable for you. If it's a leather cuff, wear the leather cuff out. If it's a harness, if it's a pin, whatever it is, so that you can feel closer to yourself, do it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to project to everyone, but don't hide yourself to the best of your comfort. What that does, it allows anyone who's curious to come to you and ask, and you don't have to explain anything to anyone else. So if someone does ask, tell me about your leather cuff or your vest or your cap or your boots or whatever it is that you're using to express yourself, that's them giving you permission to talk to them about it. Mm -hmm. And now at that point, you can discuss, you can share as much as you're comfortable sharing or as much as they're able to receive because the onus is on them now. Yeah. They've asked, so here's my information. But if they don't ask, then they're not curious or they don't want to know, and that's okay too. I keep aiming for my own level of authenticity. Yeah. I think too that what Joshua alluded to is this idea of doing one step at a time, right? And I think it's a really important message as someone on that end of the bell curve to understand that like it's never too late. 
You're never not where you're supposed to be. The thing I've taken to saying lately is if I was supposed to be somewhere else, I would be. Yeah. So this is where I am right now. And yeah. And so if taking a step in the direction of whatever that direction is, one step at a time is good enough. I want to go back to one thing that we said earlier, which is part of the work that we do. We attend conferences. And one of the things that I think is really impactful is we try to give other sex workers the viewpoint to help them understand the value of the work that they do. I think there's a tendency out there for sex workers, while they enjoy their work or they feel like it's meaningful or whatever, there's still, I do think there's still like a little sense of shame and a little sense of having to jump through certain hoops or do things certain ways. And without the understanding that it is really God's work that we do, like the amount of support and healing that we bring clients is nothing short of universal work. And not all of the sex workers we run into in our circles really grasp that. So that's another thing we try to bring wherever we go. Especially for sex workers who are doing sex work for survival. Yes. Right. The, The stress and the disrespect that comes towards us, them hearing that message about the importance of the space that they hold to help them reframe the value that they have in society. We have a really good friend out in Arizona who's been fighting this battle of self-awareness and self-worth for some time now. And when we were finally able to have that conversation about doing God's work, you could see the shift in their body, right? That there was a level of acceptance and self-respect that climbed because it's true, right? One day we'll open up a space that we can receive sex workers and hold space for them for a few weeks, a few months at a time so that they can ground themselves again and heal and work through the stuff that they're experiencing. Because God knows when you're doing sex work for survival, the choices you make contrary to what you believe in morally and ethically in your body, there's a price to pay for that. Mm-hmm. And helping them work through that and heal is very, very significant. Because again, at the end of the day, I believe what we're doing is God's work. I fully agree with that. And I think it's so beautiful that you're able to offer those reflections. I do a version of it when I take photos of people. And so I will, especially with sex workers, I'm like, you need pictures? I got you, you know? And so being able to just kind of like create that beautiful space for them to see all the glory that they're doing is my favorite. I would love to hear your respective origin stories to whatever fullness you wish to share, like your work origin stories, interweave it with, you know, whatever feels relevant, especially these themes of self-acceptance that you have planted have been coming up for me a lot personally. So I feel like you're two angels here, like delivering me information. (laughs) (laughs) But just, yeah, however makes sense to you, I would love for you to take us through the progression that got you to where you are today. Let's see, I grew up in New York City. I was born in Florida, in Hialeah. I moved to New York around four or five years old when I was five. And I've heard this story a million times from my mom when she tells everyone else to try to embarrass me. But I was under the table and I was rubbing my aunt's leg and she wore nylons and it stimulated my body. And fast forward to when I was 12 and in my formative years here in New York, masculinity was defined by sex, sexual encounters, sexual engagements, how many partners you can have. And for me, that was my permission to go down manhood right? Because I want to be a man like everyone else. As a Latino here in New York, I grew up in East Harlem and social influences and opportunities were there to support that. I started hanging out with sex workers when I was 16 out in Times Square before Disney bought it. And that's where I actually started having the conversations. Tell me about your story. Who are you? Where do you come from? And none of that clicked until just a couple of years ago. So 
I would hear these stories of these trans women who were out there doing sex work for survival. And it was tough. But at the same time, there was a beauty to the suffering and the pain because they were going through the human experience, right? And there was nothing I could do about it, but just observe and witness. I joined the military. I was in the Marines for four years. From there, I went to law enforcement for 10. From law enforcement, I went into executive protection. I was doing bodyguard work for royal family and celebrities. And in that time, when I was doing executive protection. Now, my relationship with sex and kink started from 12. I started peeing in my girlfriends at like 16 and 17, and it just gradually escalated. While I was in the military, I was the guy people would go to about sex. Tell me about this, tell me about that. And I didn't realize I was a source of information until just a couple of years ago. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's been a consistency of my relationship with not only sex, but education and affirmations. Right. If you use a vibrator, it doesn't mean you're less than. Yeah. Right. It doesn't mean your cock doesn't work. It just means it's a tool. Yeah. I remember that conversation. The guy's name was Jeanette in the Marines, and he was so ashamed of his girlfriend wanting a vibrator. And it was like, dude, it's for your benefit. (laughs) So when I was doing executive protection, there was a gentleman I connected with who asked me to treat him like a dog, and not in the sense of pup play, but in degradation and humiliation. And at the end of our scene, he looked relieved. He looked stress free, like, in subspace. When I was in high school, or even junior high, you know, when people ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer was, I want to help people. Mm-hmm. And that was all I could give. And that's such a big term, right? Big umbrella. And I thought the military and law enforcement and all that work would fill that. And it didn't. It wasn't until I worked with that gentleman to help him feel the way he wanted to, knowing that I allowed him to feel safe by our process. And that's where I got hooked was I can make a difference one-on-one at this point and really help people be okay with themselves. That's since evolved into end-of-life doula work and the NTSB counseling, which stands for non-traditional sexual behavior, which is essentially a term coined for vanilla BDSM, right? Because people hear BDSM and they think whips and chains, but it's all non-traditional sexual behavior, Yeah, right? Things that are out of the norm. So if a person's afraid of BDSM and they hear NTSB, they're like, that's me. Okay. And it gives them permission to talk about it. Wow. Wait, but when did you become a death doula? Like, how did that enter your... Also, are you a Scorpio? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Libra. A Libra. Oh, life... here for right relationship. Okay. <laughs> the uh, end of life doula work actually came through two experiences in my life. There's a leather brother of ours in his mid-70s, late 70s, who's never come out the closet. He's never said out loud he's a gay man to his friends or his family or his peers. And the idea of him transitioning from life to afterlife without ever speaking his truth is painful to me. And the other source comes from a puppy that I knew by the name of Max. And I knew Max from when he was a baby till about, I stayed with him regularly for about seven or eight years. And then there was a separation between his owner and myself. I hadn't seen her in a number of years. And I got invited to her house to do a photo shoot for their newborn baby. And sure as shit, I showed up and I couldn't see Max was nowhere to be found. So I look over and I see him sitting on a recliner and now he's deaf, he's blind, and they have a big ass puppy too, right? So he's just trying to do his old man thing. So when I walked over to him, when he caught the scent, you could see he perked up and I'm a dog lover. Like I love dogs. And it was sad to see him in that state. So we went on to shooting and later on he found me and he came and he put his head in my lap. And I held him and I was able to reflect. And I said, I don't want to forget the good things about Max. Mm. 
he's not going to be remembered here. I'm going to remember everything else about him. And that's set in the wheels of motion of what are we doing with our lives that we're leaving with regret or mm -hmm. with shame that we haven't spoken out of? And what can I do to help alleviate those who are advanced age, advanced illness to speak about their lives and to bring their truth to the surface, even if it's just me, even if they are on their way out transitioning, to have that opportunity to just hold space for someone so that they can say, this is who I am. And for me to say, I see you. Kat, what about your journey? How did you get to, <laughs> there's a club in there, there's domination work. Like, well, Listen, there's a lot of stories in here. <laughs> but relative to what you were asking about, like the lens through which you want to see my development, I too was sexually interested and then active at a fairly young age. Although, you know, I grew up here in New York, so I wasn't like the earliest one to the playground. But when I jumped in it, I jumped in it hard like i didn't realize until later like later in high school years that i was one of those girls like if a boy wanted to have sex i was all about it because i wanted to have sex yeah i found out years later that like girls like me get reputations <laughs> but i didn't care because i wanted to have sex and i didn't see anything wrong with it you know as long as you were safe like i didn't see anything wrong with having multiple partners or multiple not partners but just you know sex yeah and then i am a recovered alcoholic so my life began to derail around high school. You know, I was supposed to go to college. I didn't quite get it together. And drinking took a larger and larger place in that part of my life. I got sober at 29. In the wake of that, I began to own pieces of myself. One of them was about my sexual orientation because I had masqueraded around as a straight person for a while, even though I never really was. And so I was able to start that part of my journey. I had an interaction. I had been in two marriages and had never been in love. And then I went back to college for a semester and ended up falling in love with a classmate, a woman who I had been in school with. And it's a whole messy story, but it was the first time I'd ever had that experience of being in love. And then I get sober and then I start doing things like, well, I've always had kinky thoughts and feelings, but I had no idea what to do with them. So I started trying to step out. I was in San Francisco at the time. I started to try to find parties and places and education, and I did. So my journey starts there, like my kink sort of journey, my more sexual identity journey starts then, which is some time ago now. So when I moved here 12 years ago, fast forward the story, that's when I, I met a partner who was already doing swing parties and so I just sort of jumped in with both feet. So the development's been around that sort of thing. And as an event promoter, club owner, it was always my mission to create a space that made people feel safe and comfortable. You know, people would come in and I would start a conversation by saying, so how long have you been thinking about coming? And I would get answers like everything from two days to two years. You know, people don't cross the threshold of a swing club or a BDSM club without having put some thought and feeling into it before they got there. And for a lot of people, it's the beginning of trying to overcome shame and overcome not understanding themselves and not having communicated with their partners and all of that, right? So I would have these conversations with new people over and over again, and my mission became creating an environment safe enough and comfortable enough that, especially with couples, they would get to the end of the evening and one would say to the other, see, I told you those people were just like us. 
and let's do this again, as opposed to having a not good experience. And one part of the couple says to the other, see, I told you those people were freaks. And then they don't come back for days, months, weeks, years till they can come back to their journey. So that's been where I've taken all of my personal experience to the place of, I want to make it safe and comfortable for people to be on their journey, whatever that's going to be for them. Lovers, this episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. We all know that the foundation to an awesome sex life is excellent mental and physical health, but if proper rest, exercise, and a healthy lifestyle aren't leading to the blood flow you'd like when and where you'd like it, check out BlueChew.com. BlueChew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, but in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever the opportunity arises, and the process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you are approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online, so no visits to the doctor's office, no dealing with awkward physicians who aren't trained to talk about sex lives, plus no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet pack. They always say first impressions are important, but what about lasting impressions? Lovers, I do believe that we can always make loving, lasting impressions by connecting and being present and chasing our pleasure and our partner's pleasure. And if your priority is making a deep, deep impression between two beautiful, enthusiastic thighs or cheeks in the name of partnered pleasure, I get it. I've worn a strap on now. I, too, love having a hard cock. Blue Chew and I want you to have better sex. Discover your options at BlueChew.com. Chew it and do it. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code LOVER at checkout. You just pay $5 for shipping. That is BlueChew.com promo code LOVER to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And thank you to Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast. That's a monumental task. Like, can we focus on it for just a minute? Because like, that's very much what I'm interested in learning about going forward. And, you know, I'm now five years into interviewing people and I'm like, oh no, I can't do anything. Everyone's different. I don't know. You know, and now I'm in my little bubble. So I go out and sit in the park and talk to people I would never run into otherwise with a little sign that says share a story. And I have things that aren't just sex because I'm realizing how scary sex is to people. And just yesterday I had an experience with someone that was so well, several people, but the one that wrote to me, I think my relationship to shame, I'm still unpacking and hearing you like creating those spaces for people like, what insights do you have? How do you do it? Especially when people are just freshly walking in and then maybe mixing with community that already exists there. One of them is over time, I just developed questions. I mean, this is one of the things and you'll hear Joshua talk about it too. A lot of what this work is, is simply asking the right questions. You know, the question that starts with how long have you been thinking about this roots people in where they are, Mm. like right where they are and right at the most meaningful and vulnerable place of, you know, I, I I talk about the, the yellow brick road, right? Like if you grow up in a heteronormative, like if everything is vanilla, you live in a world that's inside of a white picket fence Mm. and everything's, you never have to think a thing about your life. You go to college, you get a job, you have friends. You go to bachelor parties, you go to weddings, you go to funerals, your whole life can happen and you don't have to think one thing about it. If, however, at a certain point in your journey, you discover that you're a man and you have a fascination with pantyhose, you're a woman and you want to kiss your best friend more than you want to kiss your husband, like anything that occurs to you that makes you aware of your difference than everyone around you, you're in a liminal place between 
this is how I know I feel about myself and what or if can I do about it? Yeah. And then when you get to the place where you're willing to like open the picket fence and step out, what I say to people is now you're like Dorothy, you're on the yellow brick road. A, you can't go back. <laughs> You'll never be able to go back. And B, you're on a very broad road where and it's like, welcome, join us. And then nothing about your journey is wrong. Nothing about your timing is off. Like we're all out here on the yellow brick road, having our own journeys. And all we do is share that with each other. So I tell that story to people all the time. So where are you? Where are you just stepping out? Tell me about that. What is that like for you? What are you just asking questions about what's happening for you? And then holding a space that says, and it's great, whatever you're going to say, like you're good. Like, so people can just speak. There's nothing more magical about creating safe space for people than to just let them feel safe to share what's going on. Yeah, no, no. How are you different than everyone around you is a question we're going to put in our intensive because that's such an impactful question, right? Because yeah. everyone feels like we're the only ones in this world. Yes. And we're all the same. The paint jobs just look different, right? We all still feel shame, joy, happiness, sadness, grief. We all have the same feelings. They just come in different forms. Yeah. So when you ask the question, how are you different than everyone around you? That gives the person holding the space to hear it. But then to say, wait a second, we're not that different. You just think you're alone in this world right. when you're not. Right. And the questions were crafted and, and honed for years of sitting with people, years of sitting with people, asking questions, looking for the light that comes on in their faces to know that we got them to the place where they're connecting to the conversation and they're starting to feel like it's okay and safe to talk about who they are and what they're experiencing. On top of that, everyone feels like they're behind someone else. Like, oh my God, I'm already 30 something, I'm 40 something, I'm 50 yeah. something, and I'm just getting here. Especially when it comes to shame and unpacking who are we and how did we get here? It's like there's no time limit on it and it's all circumstantial, right? There's no one behind anyone. No one is delayed. We're not just getting here, right? It's all circumstantial. And yeah. once we can understand that we aren't our past, right? They're just circumstances in how we got here, right? It really helps people move through that and let go of the, why am I so late? Why am I so this? Why am I so that? And it's like, look, you're good. Yeah. Why isn't even the right question? Why isn't even? <laughs> it's not. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, it's the least interesting question oftentimes because it's most likely to make people accident mad at me when I ask it. So I've learned not to ask why usually, but I am so curious. And then I'm just like, Whoa, you know, so that's such a good point, you know, and, and people do myself included. I'm still walking around feeling like I'm late to every party and weird in my own unique ways. And yet the more that I speak with others, the more I'm like, oh, we're all weird with air quotes. It's just the details are different. And we all feel late because every time I'm an adult, I'm an adult and I feel like I should know the things and I discover something I didn't know. I'm like, damn it, I should have known it. You know, but it's actually <laughs> I wouldn't be here helping people if all the things that I can't stand about myself on those days where self-acceptance is low you know, if I had all of that, I wouldn't be creating bumps in the world that are helping spread ripples of love. I was introduced to you by one of my sweet listeners who said that you have this great wisdom communicating when it comes to consent. Is that something you feel comfy speaking to a little bit? Just kind of like, how do you overview people when you're in charge of holding a safe space, whether it's in a private session with someone or in a group setting? Some time ago, I've had a few partners, husbands, however you want to look at it. I was here in New York City. I was still living in California and I was here in New York City and we found, this was in the days before the internet, honestly. 
And so we finally found a party to go to, a swing club. And we went and he and I were walking around and trying to figure out what it was felt like, what did we want to do. And we finally sat down on a bad area and turned to each other to sort of engage. And then I had this feeling like over my shoulder and I looked around and there were these guys everywhere, literally with their cocks in their hands, like in my space. And I remember looking up, my instinct was to find someone to help, to stop. And there was no one. And I didn't know then that I was going to be a club owner later. But in some ways, that experience informed a lot of what I felt like people needed to know about. Yeah. Right. So over the time, over the development of my experience as a club owner, what I did was I developed a series of statements about how the space was going to be and how your behavior was expected to be inside of the space. You know, the club would open at whatever time people would come in over a period of time. And then I would do a group and, you know, okay, everybody in the room, here it is. And 15, 20, whatever points about what was expected of you if you were going to be in the space and what did consent look like and what did it mean to be safe and what did it mean to be respectful and the expectation is is that you will be that here or you will not be here Mm. i did that at the outset of every party that i threw when kat and i connected that was one of the first things i saw when she was hosting an event was keeping the play space closed for the first 45 minutes and making everyone socialize and we've since evolved that. that when we host our events so that everyone knows each other yeah. So that there's name, people wear name tags. The idea is so that you're aware of the people's names. The other emphasis on it is equality, right? No one's anyone's dominant. No one's anyone's submissive. We're all here to explore, to work through boundary pushing for some people, right? Experiential for others. And when I saw how she opened her events of keeping the play space closed for 45 minutes and making everyone sit there and treat each other like people before they become objects in the back by consent, by choice. And the rule reading evolved into going from a swing event to larger BDSM events. There has to be more guidelines on the expectations of what what we're expecting of people. But it's not only just a reading of the rules, but we also give examples, right? Because if a person doesn't quite grasp it, we give solid examples so that they can't say, well, I didn't know. I'm kind of hardcore at some levels, right? Around the edges. I'm not necessarily soft and fuzzy in some ways. And I made it really clear the level of consent that was required to be in my space, the level of consent that was required to continue to be in my space. So I spell that out. Anyone who knows me will tell you that I don't pull punches when it comes to speaking what I mean and saying how things need to go. The development of all that language around consent, I since have found out who it is that you're referring to in terms of one of your listeners, right? And so I appreciated that they appreciated what we used to do at the club by way of doing the announcements every time. And, you know, it's, a, it's nice to know that upon reflection, I come up in the top 10 of people who do consent chats. <laughs> we hear it from other people, like people who just say, we hear about what you do. And ultimately the rule reading is about consent, comfort, and safety. Yes. It's a gift to everyone in attendance. And I actually think that that is a bomb ass way to be hardcore. Like, In fact, the only reason I have any designs on a space of my own in the future is because I just haven't found a space here that I like. I don't like going. I'm shy. I'm a little bit on the autism spectrum. Going to a loud thing is already hard for me. I want to touch everyone, but like I need 
a human connection, stranger play is boring for me. Like I can fuck strangers wherever I go, they hit on me, you know, like, so (laughs) I'm looking for that connection. And I just, I really admire that. What else would you say makes each of you awesome at what you do? Like what makes you excellent? So for the event hosting, when I started hosting events, it was the same thing for me. I just got tired of the superficial connections. What are you into? I'm into this. Let's go play and blah, 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 blah. It's like, listen, everyone's into almost the same shit. Just talk. Yeah. Be people. That's how people before kink, our foundation, our the philosophy before the intensive we host came to pass. People before kink, you are who you are before what you are. What I do at the events is I make sure I meet everyone that comes through the door so that they have someone that they know the head of the party so that they don't feel alone because that's what I would do. I'd pay to go into a space and there we are among a hundred other strangers and no one's talking. And it's like, it's so disconnecting that it's like a fetish factory, not you, Glenn in Florida, not fetish factory, the store, but it's like, (laughs) like a skate park. (laughs) It's like, look at the cool shit I do. And it's like, that's awesome. But understand the vulnerability the investment that everyone makes into each other to create these spaces for each other. It is not about you walking into this space. It's about what do you bring to the space to help maintain its cohesiveness and its peace. All right. What was the question? (laughs) What do you do? What else do you do that makes you phenomenal or excellent? She's the hammer. I was about to say, right? Like people used to say to me, like, well, what's security at your club? And I'm like me, people would look at me askance. I'm like, a, I'm, old i was old enough at some point to be almost everybody's mother mm-hmm. and no boy in particular wants to be taken out of the playroom and scolded about their sex <laughs> behavior if it would come down to them having to come to get me to yeah. talk to somebody you were in trouble i've never had trouble being that the heavy right like i'll take yeah. you out of the room and i'll tell you exactly what's going on and exactly how much longer you get to be here until i'm throwing you out and what it's going to take i'm the person who fires people i'm the person who does all of that heavy lifting And I do think that's some of what makes me good at what I do, because I do have, see, I do have something to back that up, right? Right. I I, I do have the ability to back that up. But that coupled also with the ability to see people, I can see stress. I can see distress in your face. Like I'll have conversations with people that are challenging and they'll go to cry five times, let's say, and pull it back. And every time think that they somehow fooled me (laughs) and we'll be talking and I'll be like, And that part where you didn't want to cry and they look at me like they've been found out. I'm like, I see people, right? And I can communicate with you in a way that lets you know that you've actually been seen. So that is the softer side of me Yeah. when I'm not busy being heavy. Wow. Do you feel like that's a skill you've developed over the years or is that just like a natural gift? Well, I'm sure you've developed it even if it's a natural gift, but how do you understand kind of that part of yourself? It's hard to say. You know, I say this to people a lot, like almost everything I know I learned through the journey of my sobriety, right? There's a million things like, you know, you run around people who are, who do recovery stuff and you learn lots of things. And some of it is about being a sober woman, right? Like I learned how to sit with people. I learned how to sit with myself. And at the same time, I'll say that's one of the things I'm still learning how to do myself is sit, you know, with myself and for myself. But I do think that the journey through sobriety, the journey through having my life completely crash and burn and what does it look like to pick yourself up and find another way to live, I think contributes to my ability to see that in other people. Mm. Just as I was listening to you both talk, thinking about the space that you're creating, you know, like you said, it's not a factory. It's almost like you're 
creating a space where people can be their full authentic selves and express their artistry through their sexuality. Because it's like, if I'm working with another artist as a painter, as a photographer, as whatever, like if we just get together and are like, okay, let's go, it's what? But if we take a little bit of time to understand each other's like ethos or, or even just personality, like then we can figure out how we actually want to collaborate and play together. So it sounds like you guys create excellent space for that to happen. One of the terms we've co-opted from somewhere else is to say we're making better people through the guise of kinky sex. Co-opted? I made that shit up. Oh, (laughs) Fair enough. I love that. Well, maybe Kat co-opted it from Joshua. That's it. Yeah, because that's what we do. It's like people want to learn the modalities and stuff, but they don't quite grasp the responsibilities and the power behind the connection and vulnerability. Yes. And it's like through our intensives and the work together that we do with people, the introspective work, the healing that we're asking people to do for themselves is going to make them better for themselves. Yeah. And when they're done working with us, when they've come through the intensives or we're working one-on-one, on the other side of it, they raise their own threshold of authenticity and they get to set the example moving forward on how to change life to be true to themselves moving forward. And that inspires the people around them, mm-hmm. right? And They generally come to us because they want to learn about kink and sex. And it's like, well, here's the homework. Here's a five-hour intake form to do just so that you have language around your own identity. (laughs) Co-opted. Listen, I'll throw you in on that later where that came from. Yeah, but I mean, we, we do counseling work with people. We recently worked with a couple and they dug in deep. We spent four or five days with them, which is a very different way of approaching counseling that we do, which is to just stay in it for several days in a row and really dig stuff up and take a look at things. And they were willing to work really hard. And they came out the other side of it with their relationship better, with their ability to communicate with themselves and each other increased and improved. And those are life changing changes. When you beat your head up against the wall, the same wall with a partner, let's say, and your communication gets cyclical, repetitive, and you're not getting anywhere to be able to have that block, like sort of knocked out and find other language and find a way to learn to sit. We watch them learn to sit with each other, even in the days we were there together, to really be in touch with themselves, to have the courage. Because a lot of times I may know about myself, but I don't have the courage to say it to you out loud. Mm. Right. And part of what we do in making space for people is give them the courage to speak because we create a safe enough container. Like if a couple can sit with us and we create the safety for them to begin to speak to each other because we're there almost as referees, what they do is they get legs under them for how to do this even when we're not around. How can they begin to speak with each other more authentically, offer up more of their truth to the other one, knowing that they know now how to not judge the other one, how to hear each other, how to create the feeling seen and heard that we create for others. And then they do it for each other and then take it moving forward. Like they're doing it with their kids. It's like, it just spills out from there. Lovers, we are going to take a quick pause for a word from our sponsor. And they have given me notes to do a sultry female voice. So I'm very excited and I'm going to do my best. Did you know the Flora app is a safe place to open up, embrace your desires and find like-minded people. This is the story of one couple who found the threesome of their dreams discovered a new level of shared passion, and stepped into a whole other realm of possibilities, all thanks to Floor. As life's routines settled in, Robert and Lucy found themselves yearning to explore uncharted territories, so they downloaded Floor and embarked upon a thrilling journey of sensual experimentation, learning more about each other's desires in the process. 
Open-minded and adventurous, Robert and Lucy dreamt of adding a new dimension to their intimacy, sharing the touch of another woman, being witnessed and connecting in a way that transcends the ordinary. In Fleur's diverse and accepting community, Lucy connected with Emily, a babe craving the same experiences. So they invited Robert to the conversation. The chemistry built and anticipation heightened as they exchanged messages until finally their agreed-upon date night arrived. A gorgeous hotel was the setting for their evening of pleasure, passion, and connection. A shared exploration that fulfilled each party's desires. Fleur App celebrates the beauty of open-minded connections. It's a platform where fantasies come to life and desires are embraced without judgment. For couples seeking adventure with others or individuals keen on exploring, Fleur invites us all to a world where every desire is a possibility waiting to unfold. Download Fleur now, express your desires freely, and find like-minded people today. Yeah, would you tell us a little bit more about the intensive work you do with people? Like, how are they invited in? How do people kind of connect with you? What does that look like right now? So our intensive program is called the Power Exchange Academy. And this is leaning towards the kink journey. It starts off with an intake form where folks will receive 20, 30 questions for themselves, essentially to do a personal inventory on who am I and where am I, where am I at today on these fundamental questions. And none of it is based on kink. It's all about identity. So like we have an intensive coming up in Easton Mountain here in New York in a town called Gren Greenwich, not Greenwich, 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 New York. I've got corrected by the locals. <laughs> so they'll get the intake form. They show up Thursday afternoon. We have our opening circle and our show and tell and a couple other things for that evening. Come Friday morning, our foundation program called Connection Simplified is a program where it was developed off of the work that we would do doing professional domination where I hold space for a person, they share with me their identity. And in that process of sharing is where a lot of the healing comes because they're validating themselves. I'm validating them. They're speaking their own truth, self-actualizing by sharing this information about themselves. And it's almost like accountability questions. For example, one of them is, give me three characteristics that make you feel drawn to a person. Or what does trust mean to you and what does it take to build? Why do you matter? Things like this, so that it makes a person think and speak their truth in front of a total stranger who in turn is going to reciprocate the same thing. And in that, what we're providing the space for is them to experience vulnerability, authenticity, self-actualization in a safe container that's created for them to process their introspection in the safety of an education space. On the other side of this, they realize that I can speak to a total stranger, someone I would have never spoken to a day in my life, and we have so much more in common than we don't. Mm -hmm. And in that process, what they learn is, wow, how many relationships could I've passed up on my life because they didn't hit the social markers or my expectations and what I needed to do to fill in these empty slots in my life. And it really flips them upside down. What happens after that, once we've established this connection, the ability to speak without feeling shamed or judged, through that experience, we bring in the modalities so we can learn not if this is for me, but how can I enjoy this? How can I get to yes versus no, I don't like that. And the one modality that I always use that almost gets everyone all the time is punching. Because we have this yes, no, maybe list of kinks that we send out so that people can review, but not answer, but just so that they can have it in their mind. And the one I bring up is punching. Are you into punching? And most people go, no, I don't like to be punched in my face. And it's like, I'm not going to punch you in the face. Have you ever had a massage? And they'll say yes. And then I go, have you ever had them do this into your muscle parts? And they go, yes. And I go, you know what that's called? And they'll look at me 
And I'll say it's called punching because it's a close hand fist yep. impacted. Yeah. Some people may be triggered by it being impacted with a punch, with a close hand because of abuse, domestic violence, assault, whatever it was. But that's information, right? Because most of the time, 99% of the time, it goes from no to fuck yes. Because mm. yes, I like to have deep impact in my muscles. So that's a yes for punching. And the intention behind the program is how do we make it accessible? Not if kink is for me, but how is kink for me? Yeah, And we continue the next three days with that. They're immersed into the modalities, into the programs, so that they can learn how to communicate. You're not going to learn the most flashy techniques. We just want to make sure that you know that you can do it for yourself. Most people are kinking, whether they know it or not. I say all. I say everyone. They are. Whether they label it that, whether it's conscious or not. The more I talk to people, I'm like, wait, but you like, but you don't like. Okay. Oh, I, I've had, we don't have time for this, but I've had some crazy conversations with people who led the conversation by saying, oh, I don't know anything about that. I don't. And then, you know, 10 minutes in, they're like relaying some of the craziest kinky stuff that they're engaged in yes. with no sense that they're kinky at all. So, yes. so that's a thing. The people who say, no, I'm not, are afraid to look at the shadow here mm. off to their side because either they don't trust the people they're with, the religion or some other form of belief has told them not to. When they dig deep inside, and it's not for me to know, I don't care if you do or you don't, but you should. I think you should know what you're afraid of and what you're afraid to talk about because on the back end of life, that's regret, yeah. right? Imagine the things I could have done with my life and I waited so long and here I am dying and now it's too late, mm-hmm. right? It's like that's to the degree of shame or lack of introspection or just admitting to oneself, it's okay that I desire something that's non-traditional. Man, yeah, people need to hear that. The the other thing that I think is helpful about what we do, and we use this language, is to see and hear another person. I mean, being seen and heard without judgment is always, you know, the tagline to that is very affirming and very empowering. But also learning how to see and hear another. We hold space, but we teach people how to hold space Mm -hmm. for themselves and for others. And I think that's some of where the power comes from in terms of what we do from the standpoint of people taking skill sets from what we do and bringing it into their lives. Yeah. It's definitely the communication base that's the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. And the coolest thing about it is you only have to experience it one time. You only have to go through and speak your truth to a total stranger and to see and hear what they share back with you, to see that you're not alone in what you thought were your own struggles in life or your own experiences or insert anything. Yeah. We've had some of the most mind-blowing feedback. We did an intensive once where two women were paired together who we never imagined. Neither did they imagine that they had anything to do with each other by their markers. And one had to do with the issue of being trans. And so the conversation for them went to, why why do we use the term cisgender? Right? Like they didn't understand that. And the the trans woman was able to explain why and the Mm. importance of it. And the other woman's mind was blown and she'll never be the same. Like her understanding and insight into something she had no way of understanding prior to sitting with this other woman was life-changing. Ultimately, the question was, why do you use the term cis? And the trans woman said, because if we didn't use the word cis, the word that they would use is real. And that would negate us as trans women. Dude, listen, everyone's jaw dropped. People were crying because it's legit. And the one who shared, the cis woman that shared was like blown away. Because she realized that the importance of validating another human's experience just by using another word. Game changer. 
game changer. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff when we have moments like that in intensives, I like <laughs> say, how did I get to be this lucky that yeah. I'm in this room? You know, we facilitate, we don't teach anybody anything really. We just facilitate experience for people. We facilitate learning and experience. That's what it is. Like we don't teach anything that you could learn on YouTube. We don't teach by standing up in front of a class and lecturing. We'll talk for five minutes and then it's like, here you go. It's in your hands. What are you doing? Let's do it. Let's do it. Like all of our intensives are all about having you do all the things. The only thing we can share in these classes is wisdom through our own experiences in the same information we're providing them to do themselves. Those are the best lessons, just holding space for people and letting them actually put the pieces together. Yes. What are some of the reactions you've gotten over the years when you tell people what you do? Like at any points on your journey, like how do people respond to you? Especially if you're like, I don't fucking care. Here's who I am. Like, what has that been like? (laughs) So what I do is because I have fun with it. I try to make people agree with everything that I'm doing, regardless of how staunch against it they are. Because I make, I boil it down to human interactions and belief, right? Don't you want to feel, imagine, and I tell, I tell it to people like this who are hard against it. I said, essentially what I do is I want people to think about the person in their life that they feel the most authentic with, 100%. And then I help them use that baseline to get through all the relationships in their lives so that they don't have to feel any less than. I also bring in religion into it, especially if they're religious. Yeah. I talk about belief system and what does God want from you? And I'll have them break it down to me and then I'll pull up my own examples of how this is the same thing as the belief system of the leather lifestyle is ultimately, in my perspective, a belief system of characteristics, morals, right? Traits on social norms. How do I treat people? Am I kind? Am I open? Am I honest? Am I transparent? Am I doing what's right? Because ultimately, if we want to get to the upper echelons of vulnerability and kink, We have to be truthful with each other to a point where there's no doubt that what I'm telling you is the truth. Now imagine the only difference between my belief system and yours is I will accept you no matter how you come from, whatever sexual identity or orientation you have, because I believe that is the deepest connection two human beings can have, is intimacy and, and vulnerability. Sex happens to be a byproduct of that. And then I'll flip it back to them. How are you living up to your belief systems? And then I'll say, wouldn't you want that in your life? I was like, what do you say? No, I don't want authenticity. He's he's very (laughs) persuasive. (laughs) I want to move people past the judgment by putting them into our shoes. I think it bears emphasizing. He doesn't say, how are you living according to my belief system or your church's belief system? He's like, how are you living according to your belief? What is your belief system and how are you living up to that? That's a beautiful invitation. What about you, Kat? Like, what have you run into with you know, telling people what you do in the world. I didn't run into a lot of judgment or negativity around what I was doing or that I was doing it. It was mostly like, Ooh, that sounds so like, tell me about that. What is that like? If I talk long enough, what I usually get is you should write a book. That's usually (laughs) what people say to me after a fashion. Totally. What would you say are the hardest parts of the work that you have done over the years? I guess from my side is marketing. How do I get the people who need this work in through the door? Yeah. The work is not hard. I love what I do. Is it stressful financially at times? COVID was a motherfucker, right? Yeah. But I don't not want to do this work and getting the message, finding the right language. If there's a marketing person out there watching this and you want to help, dude, reach out (laughs) because I could use, I could use your help and it would change my life forever. But ultimately that's the hardest part is 
the right language to get the right people through the door. Because people ask us, well, who is this intensive? Who is your work best for? And it's like anyone who's looking to do their own personal development. But not a lot of people want to do that. Yeah. And this work, the <laughs> introspective work, the connection simplified work has nothing to do with kink at all. Right. So some of the work that we do is bringing the connection simplified process to corporations, to people on the spiritual plane without having to do anything with kink, because that's what this work does. I mean, everyone will benefit from being connected with themselves and finding the language to communicate who they are to the people around them. That's not solely in the purview of kinky people. Like That's anybody. Yeah. Right. So definitely the marketing piece. I've had trouble because I do all of the behind the scenes stuff. And so I just literally this week have a solution to doing this all alone. I have a team that just formed that I'm really excited to start working with to begin to unbury myself from the pile of administrative stuff that I can never get ahead of on my own. I feel that that's incredible. I'm also working on a book called Healing Through Kink, which is going to be a workbook for folks to do this introspective work by themselves. But also I'm going to use this book to help certify mental health professionals to talk with their clients and walk with their clients through this process of understanding self because it's not about knowledge, right? You can read a million books and have all this information. It's like, and I always use this analogy, you can't teach someone how to swim if you've never been in the water. Yeah. You can learn all the techniques, all the safety, all the breathing, all the strokes out of a book, but until you hit that water and you can't feel the ground, when you have that, oh shit, realization, shit's real, right? It's like, I think Bruce Lee was talking about black belts. If you hit him in the face once in a fight, they go down to brown belt. Then you hit them again. It's like once you're in the stress levels of it, all that knowledge goes out to the wayside and it becomes very survival based, mm -hmm. right? So it's like when you're working through the shame and this fear, you're asking your client to reflect to you some of the scariest things in their life. And you have no idea what they're feeling in their body through that because you haven't done it yourself. I've been there. I'm a really good example of a person <laughs> who has just been taking in other people's knowledge and books and theoretical knowledge. And, you know, in the last year or two that I've really been going out in the world to gather my own experiences, having that touchstone in my body and then seeing how it progresses over time and how I could, it's, it's a completely different experience. I would love to hear your insights on what you have learned through your work about sexual shame. I know it's a huge topic, but I would just love to hear kind of like what stands out to you. People aren't doing enough work on their childhood. People aren't reflecting on how they learned on their relationships with sex, touch, intimacy, uh, interpersonal relationships. Everyone's checking in with where they're at now and moving forward and saying, okay, that happened to me. And they make their life experiences, they bring it just to the threshold of awareness versus processing it and understanding what happened and also trying to decouple the emotional connections to it to understand the circumstances of those in their life or in that circumstance that they're reflecting on in order to heal from it. More people need to do the introspection and the reflection work into their childhood to understand how they got here. Mm -hmm. Once you can understand how you got here, can you make much larger strides in order to work through that shame as opposed to saying, well, that's something that just happened in my past and I know about it. So that's that. That's how I come to be today. And it's like, that's just the first step of actually working through that is awareness. I think most shame stems from judgment. Yes. You know, you were a young person, you expressed a thought, a feeling, exhibited a behavior, and you were judged. And so shame is the internalized version of judgment, 
right? Like I was judged, therefore I judge myself. Yeah. To me, that is the nature of shame, right? So some of the way out of that is to stop judging. And some of the way out of that is the process that we go through. Well, how do you hold space for another person and not judge? It's much easier to start with, I'll stop judging you, right? Stopping judging myself is not easy, especially if you've been doing it for years. It's been ingrained in you from the time that you were a child. Some of it involves what Joshua just said about having to go back and untangle what the judgments were and where did they come from? Did they come from uptight parents? Did they come from religiosity? Like, where did they come from? And understanding all of that. But I do think it's untangling judgment, external and internal, from your life experience that helps you walk out of shame. Yeah. I would love to hear how your professional work has influenced your personal life and or vice versa, because I know like me, maybe you are people who, well, you said it earlier, Joshua, your life is in parallel. Like, so I would love to hear any specific kind of like noodlings, takeaways on just the influence that you've noticed. I have two clients that come to mind that really impacted my life. Holy, holy. There's a Catholic priest that I've worked with. He's been a priest for, I think, 41 or 42 years now, uh, just as long as I've been alive. And after our first session, I walked him through his relationship with God right? Because he had a lot of doubt and self-judgment on the experience that we shared together in domination, that he was worried God would be angry or disappointed because he's been a man of the cloth for 40-something years. And being able to talk him through that inner turmoil he was having, what does God want from you? I was someone who stepped away from church, organized religion many years ago, and I found my connection to God through BDSM, through my work, not through the work in and of itself, but the process of connection. Yes. To hold space for someone who's been a priest as long as I've been alive because he needed to be walked through his relationship with God was validating isn't even the word. It was like there was an awareness in that of the work that I'm doing that said it is much bigger than you could put words to. Then there was another gentleman who was married for 20, 30-something years to a woman he got divorced, he came out the closet, and he had this huge negative space in his heart towards women. And through our process, and through meeting Kat, <laughs> he realized that it, it's not all women. It was the woman he was married to. Yeah. At the end of our session, all the work and conversations that this guy and I had, there's a painting or a statue or a ton of it called uh, the Pieta, right? Where Mary's holding Jesus. I don't know if it's a painting or a statue, but it, it's out there where Mary's holding Jesus, right? And at the end of our session, I was holding him. He was crying. And I could have sworn I felt light come from the sky onto us to say, you have completed the whole human experience mm -hmm. from meeting to sharing, to being vulnerable, to helping each other heal and validate each other to this moment of peace at the end of it was like, this is what the human experience is about. And there's been nothing like that nothing so big like that. Granted, I've had a lot of incredible experiences, but that one was really grounding to me that said, you are walking well, right? You're walking the path well. And I found my purpose through this profession, through this journey. I can't ask of my clients what I'm not willing to do myself either. And that's the introspective work. That's the self-accountability, having the hard talks with my partners in my life, yeah. right? And it's like, I can't ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. What about you, Kat? What if you noticed your... I'm supposed life? to follow that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you asked the question both ways. 
work impact life, life impact work. I've been sober for, it'll be 30 years this year. And I really have to say that all the things that I've learned in my journey of being and becoming a sober woman have probably impacted all the areas of my life, including work in the most meaningful way and the most effective in the biggest way has been that. You know, in the course of my journey around other recovered people, there's a million phrases in the community that I'm in. You know, we always like to say that we're a little dumb. We need everything like in five words or less. Like, this. But anytime I'm with people, those phrases all come to mind. Those little quips of how to live a better life that I got there have served me in good stead in every other area of my life. Mm. Do you have anything to say about boundaries between personal and professional life? How do you think about them? Does that come up for you? It's tough. I believe they're there and they should exist. With that being said, Slave Mary, who I've been with for over three years now, started off as a client. And I don't pursue intimate or personal relationships with clients. What happened there was she was at the lowest point of her life when we met. And her asking for guidance and leaning into it and seeing how she turned her whole life around was so inspiring and so influential. She came to me about deepening it. And when someone, because I don't, I'm like the reluctant Dom. <laughs> I don't want power exchanges. But her commitment to herself was inspiring and motivating for me to say, yes, mm. let's continue talking and let's see how it develops. And now she's been my slave for over two years. It's been incredible to watch her grow. That is one out of a hundred. Nor do I seek that with my clients. I do maintain friendships because what we are sharing is vulnerable. But for boundary, when I'm working with clients, it's about you. It's not about me. In my personal life, it's about us. Yes. Sometimes me, but us. Yeah. But in my professional relationship, it is one way. Now, two way, yes, I'm getting, there's a flow of energy and you're paying me and we're working together and stuff like that. But the focal point isn't about me. The focal point's about you. Kat, do you have anything to add? Mm, other than to say, I think boundaries are where it's at. <laughs> I think a lot of people's experiences in life in interpersonal relationships that are challenging come from not having boundaries, not knowing how to set boundaries, not knowing how to, like I call police boundaries, not knowing that it's okay or necessary to have boundaries. Yeah, I could talk about boundaries for a long time. I feel like your vibe for enforcing them, are you just very straightforward? Like, are you just like, no, nah, that's not going to work? Or are you like, do this instead? Like, what do you do? Like, I feel like you're so proud of this face. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been doing recovery work around codependency for probably even longer than around alcoholism. And you don't come out of the codependent hole without learning about boundaries. Yeah. And without learning what it is. And Back then, did I struggle? Absolutely. Was it hard? Did I believe, you know, I believed the things that I think a lot of people believe. No, you won't like me if I set a boundary. I'll be alone. Nobody will want to be with, like all the reasons people don't want to set boundaries. Yeah. Because you don't understand what they are and how they work. Once you have some experience setting them, seeing the effects of them, understanding that like that's the way to the life you want to have, then suddenly it becomes easier to want to do, easier to find ways to do. But it's not easy if you come from a place as I did from not having any or not knowing how to have them to having them and putting them in place and seeing what that's about. I mean, the work stuff ones, I mean, I, you know, I was in the hospitality business for a long time and those kind of boundaries to me are very straightforward and simple. You know, you don't have sex with people you work with, you know, like all of that stuff almost seems to go without saying. 
Some of us need everything said out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No sex with your coworkers? That's, I feel that, that exa- one. <laughs> like, I think I've fucked a coworker everywhere I've ever worked. I don't know. <laughs> I think as I'm talking to you both too, I'm reflecting not just, you know, we hear conversations about boundaries and we're like, ah, we need them. But I imagine the way you each deliver them is quite unique and delicious and emotionally intelligent. You know, and Kat, like I see you're kind of like straightforward, but with a loving sense of humor. And, you know, Joshua, I see this like, deep, thoughtful sensitivity that's like grounded as fuck from where I'm sitting, you know, and then I reflect on my because I'm like friendly, friendly, friendly. And then I'm, when I hit a boundary, sometimes I'm like, nope, that does not work. <laughs> you know, and I come in. So I'm seeing just like this grace in your experience. And I wonder if you have like, can you put that into words about your experience in it? Like, is there a playfulness there or just a certainty? I think it's tough for me because I've been a people pleaser for a long time. Oh, Libra. And <laughs> yeah, right. Boundary setting has actually been difficult for me. Ah. It's been very difficult for me because I don't want to say no. I've been worried about hurting people's feelings or not being enough or insert any of those worries. And with what Kat said now about, is this the life that I want to live? Right. I think the shoe drops for me after the cup is full of the nonsense. For example, one of the boundaries that I've worked on over the years is I will help you as long as you help yourself. But the minute you stop helping yourself, I'm done. I can't help you. Yes. Right. And the closer you are to me, the harder it is for me to do that. And I'm just like shame. Boundary setting is also something I'm continuously working on because right? mm-hmm. I'm not where I want to be. But with the perspective that Cap just shared of, is that the life you want to live? If the answer is no, then how do we get there? Right. And it's having the hard talks. It's being uncomfortable so that I can shed that skin. So thank you, Mama. Thank you for saying that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, when I'm working with other people about boundary setting, Boundary setting is a necessary evil challenge, et cetera, if you're going to create relationships that you want to have. When you're in a relationship that isn't the way you want it to be, there's a good chance that there's some boundary issue, right? You're either not speaking your truth, you're not being heard, you're letting the person get away with behavior that you, there's something. Everybody's need for a boundary, everybody's type of boundary is different. Like what I need in my life is not what you need in your life in order to be okay and to be who you want to be and to have the life you want to have, at least on the relationship front. So some of boundary setting is about determining what does that need to be for you? And then what does it take? A lot of it's just like propping up like, okay, like this is what it will look like. I know it's really scary. So this is how you're going to like, and walking people through, how are you going to do it? Are you going to have a conversation on the phone? Are you going to write like just even moment to moment? How do you set a boundary? And then what to expect. So you'll set the boundary and then the person won't honor it. They'll keep pushing against it. Because when you start to send boundaries, people don't want you to. Um, Particularly if you've lived a certain kind of way. People who are in your life now, who are used to you being, however, they're not interested in you setting a boundary. So when you do for the first time, they'll be like, well, sure, you don't, you know, they'll push up against it. And so then I, it's what I called earlier, policing a boundary. Mm -hmm. If you set it and you mean it, then you have to police it. It's like, no, no, no. Remember I set that boundary. I said that it's got to be like that. I really meant it. Yeah. And you do that enough times to either the person goes away or you get tired of it. And then you move on. Your relationship life is like a spiral that goes up as you begin to set boundaries, as you begin to be able to usher out the people who are not interested in yeah. you taking care of you and begin to make room when taking something away, the universe makes room for something you don't currently have which in this case is relationships with people who do want you to be your best self and do want to support 
your growth and your development in terms of what you need to feel good about who you are in your life. When you let other people go, there's room for those people to come in and boundaries is the currency by which that happens. Damn, that's beautiful. And also just really, really clearly reflecting to me my last year and my this year. And I was living <laughs> in the story of like, oh, I'm so I'm so good at enforcing my boundaries. I'm going to be alone forever. But what's happened in the past few months <laughs> and I had to have those spaces is my life is currently like filling up with brand new, really loving, supportive, wonderful, thoughtful people. So I'm like, oh, and you just like articulate, you just like narrated my life to me. But you have to be willing, you have to have the courage to let go first. Yes. Like, you know, the universe can't bring you what there's no room to bring you. So you have to have the courage to let go. And so it sounds like that's exactly what you did. You did. And then you see the benefit of, oh, there are other people in the world who want to think of me differently and treat me differently and speak to me differently. And that space in between can feel like insurmountable. I was like, am I ever going to have friends again? Will anyone ever know me? Like, Will anyone ever care? You know, and it's scary, you know, in those moments. Here's another one of those phrases. When one door closes, another one opens, but the hallways are a bitch. Oh, <laughs> yes. Very. That's I've never heard the hallways part. That's beautiful. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. I would love to hear from you if you can say in any realm of your sex related work, have you noticed trends in your industry over any amount of time? Like whether it's as a club owner, as someone who facilitates growth for people. COVID was a big turning point for people. I guess people saw the mortality in life and they were like, what the fuck am I doing? Especially after being locked up for however long. Yeah. It was like, I need to take action in my life. There's been more actionable people. Mm. Yeah. We saw a whole influx. We started doing events just as soon as we could after the most of COVID lifted. Yeah. And there was an influx of brand new people. And invariably, when queried, the response was, yes, I had thought about this for years, but then COVID made me realize I wasn't doing anything about it. And I realized that that's not how I want my life to go anymore. And so they found the events. They started showing up. They started asking questions. All brand new people because COVID made them have that reflection of life is short, maybe shorter than we thought it was going to be. What are you most excited to explore in your work going forward? Kat asked me the other day, where do I see myself at the end of life or (gasps) something along those lines? And for the first time I've ever been able to piece this together, I said, I want to open a hospice center for the folks that want to do the work that we do. Mm. Right. And like, that's where I want to be on the back end before Mm. I check out. (laughs) I'm excited on getting there. We have a huge opportunity to expand what we're doing here in New York City. Our alumni from our programs are growing our abilities to teach what we're teaching, how we're teaching it is ever expanding and evolving. I think this is the first time in my life where I see the next step where it's going to require financial investment and I'm not afraid. As long as one of us isn't afraid, both of us aren't afraid on the same day. We're 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 good. We're good. That's the most compelling reason for partnership. I think anyone has illustrated to me in a long time. Damn. Ooh, good one. It's hard to put into words the relationship that we have, right? It's beyond partners, primary, boyfriend, girlfriend, any of that. It's the support that she's given me and I've given her to work through some really hard stuff. Like we met when her husband passed away from cancer. And it was like, just the way the universe throws shit together, (laughs) there's something bigger happening. I, I believe the opportunity we have to do with our work is to change the trajectory of humanity, to save it. If we can just move past everything that's been put in front of us, or at least 
start to move past it. Or at least enjoy what we have of it while we're here on this planet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's all with intention. It's all with intention. Yeah. In order to continue to be a sober person, I can't spend a lot of time in what's not here mm -hmm. in terms of the future. I mean, we're planning or as much as you have a business and you have to do those things to move yeah. forward, but where do I live internally? Yeah. I'm having my best moments when I'm in the moment I'm in, Same. right? Beautiful. When I start thinking about the future and spend too much time there, it doesn't go well for me. So I do best when I'm right here, right now. Fuck yeah. I agree. Okay, so this is still a fantasy question, but we can ground it in the present. If you could wave a magic wand and teach everyone everywhere something about sex, what would it be? Communication. Introspection and communication. The importance of it. From everything I've seen, that is like the most important part to change anything is who am I really versus what is society expecting of me? The only thing I can come up with this quick on this question is that it's okay yeah. who you are how you feel what you want what you think all around the issue of sex is okay there's a book by dr susan k called am i normal if that book is game-changing because reading the book requires a person to reflect on questions that are in the book that reflect on our past that book really helped me find a lot of language around the work that we're doing if I, if I can do anything, I'd have every person on the planet buy that book. <laughs> I love read that. It. I can't, I can't wait book. to go read it. I will. I am a person yeah. that like, I read the books people recommend to me and then I, you know, inevitably they work their way into my mouth and spout out. So <laughs> thank you for that. Yes, yes. What are the best ways for people to interact with you? So we have our websites, ssdce.org, which stands for Sanctuary for Spiritual Development and Consciousness Expansion. We do a lot of personal development work through that business, a lot of journey work as well. Journey work being introspective, and some of it is medicine-based, medicine being psychedelics or anything else that can safely get a person into a realm of presence. Yeah. Kinkcollective.net, that's K-I-N-K collective.net, is our group name where we have information on our websites and our education series and on social media, Kink Collective as well. King Collective NYC on Twitter, Facebook, FetLife, Instagram. I mean, for me, I always tell people the easiest thing to do is go to kingcollective.net. And then there's right as you scroll down the first page, it says reach out to us. It goes to our email address, which is kingcollectivenyc at Gmail. <laughs> but if you can't remember that, just go to the website and then write me and say, I heard you on the podcast. And whatever your question is or whatever you want to know, just send us a message. We Beautiful. offer everyone a free 30-minute consultation. Just reach out and we use that time to determine how can we work with each other. Gorgeous. And links to everything is in the description below, lovely listeners. Lastly, a fantasy brainstorm. If you had an unlimited budget to build a sexy playroom or house or castle or building, etc., whatever structure you like, it can be for yourself, it can be for your brand, it can include a hospice, what would it be like? So for me, it's a plot of property, mm -hmm. right? Where we have different structures on the space where people come to us to work with us in person. The room, the sex room would be a barn or something large where we can do one-on-one -on -one play and we have the whole space to run the gamut, but we can also host events there yeah. and allow people to come and be immersed in it. I don't really care about the equipment in there. It'll have whatever we need, but it's more about the space so that the neighbors can't hear you scream. Yes. Enjoy. Yes. <laughs>
Yes. Yeah, that property is part of my bigger vision for what I see and what I want. And if money was no object, yeah, it would be big and beautiful. It, there'd be a main house. You could come and either do your own personal journey. We would be able to host all kinds of events. And they're all sexy. Everything's sexy when you're yes. like, living your authentic life. Yeah. Sexy retreat space. That's what I want. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Kat and Joshua, thank you so much for being a guest on Sex Stories. Thank you so thank much. You. It's thank been such a good us. time.